Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, in the sand lot that is Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author, and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, to everyone, to Episode 7 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. As always, we are glad you have joined us. Now, before we get into today's episode, I want to once again encourage all of you to head over to iTunes or thewayofimprovement.com to download past episodes or subscribe to the podcast. We also hope you will consider writing a review at iTunes, telling your friends of what we are up to in this little corner of the podcasting world. As always, Drew Durley Hermeling is with me. And Drew, I know we both have been waiting for this episode. Yes, I'm going to save our listeners from a rousing and off-key rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game. But I have to say I'm pretty excited because today is our baseball episode. That's right. So we're not going to get a Harry Carey uh, impersonation from Wrigley Field. Uh, it'll be about as bad. Okay. <laughs> Um, by the way, speaking of baseball, uh, let's talk a little baseball. How are your Cardinals doing? How did they start the season? Well, they haven't started too well. At the point of recording, they're 0-2. Um, but, uh, well, we, we seem to have caught the injury bug already. And those who follow baseball will also know that the rival Cubs have stacked their roster this offseason. So, uh, but we've got a good core of players, no holes in our lineup, and a lot of depth. So I think we'll be in good shape over the long season. Question will be whether we have that uh, that pop when it comes time for playoff comes time for playoffs. So, but you're a New Jersey boy. How about your Mets? My Mets, uh, they had a rough start on Sunday night on ESPN. Although they fought back valiantly in the ninth, they lost four to three. Uh, to the Royals, uh, but they came back. They got a nice game out of Syndergaard, Syndergaard and. Yeah, they won 2 nothing uh, the other night. So they're 1-1. One one. Uh, fascinating thing happened this year. I don't know if you probably saw this, that the uh, the top the teams that met in the World Series for the first time in Major League history met uh, on opening day. So uh, that, was pretty, uh, that was pretty exciting, even though the Mets lost. But they did spoil the Royals' uh, ring ceremony. So I was kind of happy about that. Yeah, tell you what, I'm you know I'm a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. I don't love interleague play, but I think that's pretty cool to have a, a World Series rematch in the f- opening series. Uh, you know, and kind of, 
I, I know this, it was probably hard on you, but growing up in the 80s, I've always had a bit of a distaste for the Mets. So seeing the Royals get to wear their rings out in front of the team that they beat, I don't know, I feel like that's kind of a, a, a fun way to rub it in. Yeah, I was rubbing it in. Actually, actually, you know, as a fan in the 80s, too, and as a Mets fan, I always hated the Yankees. So I used to love kind of watching the Royals, uh, those Royals-Yankees series. Actually, I was probably earlier in the 70s, you know, when George Brett used to stick it to the uh, uh, to the Yankees in some of those uh, some of those World Series games. So if there is a team that's going to uh, that's going to uh, embarrass the Mets on opening day, I guess that it's OK if it's the Royals. But we'll be back. Our pitching's just too good um and and i think anything other than the world series for my mets this year is going to be a disappointment yeah well, well hopefully we'll stand in your way that's right yeah it could be a mets cardinals nlcs we'll see what happens so drew let's switch gears a little bit uh, i understand you were at a academic conference this weekend uh yeah well Actually, first, I need to offer a small correction from last episode. I was listening to the episode with my wife, and we got to the part where I tried and failed to describe her disinterest in the types of theoretical work that I often wax on about. Um, So I ended up kind of making it sound like she couldn't keep up with the conversation when it veers in the direction of critical theory. But let me assure you, she is quite capable of keeping up, of keeping up. She just has no patience for my pontificating, and she's not alone. These are the kinds of things, uh, the kinds of academic conversations that many people, both within and outside of the academy, feel are just jargon-filled nonsense. <laughs> so, so tell me about this conference. Let's, I'll get you off the hook. <laughs> well, I mean, it was great. It was a collection of mostly um, literary critics uh, who study early America, talking about the theories that they use to help uh, increase their understanding of the past. I grimace, Drew, every time I hear the word theory. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm, I sometimes find theories. I was talking to someone recently about this. I find theory to be very, very helpful as long as it doesn't uh, uh, clog up my prose and sort of take over, uh, you know, my style in terms of a writer that wants to communicate uh, to um, to not just academics. So, but Drew. Now, I need to call you out on this. I noticed uh, on my Twitter feed over the weekend that you were tweeting at the conference. I was. Um, and I should say, I should say, now this is, again, the part of the show where the host makes fun of the producer. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me read uh, one of your quotes, and then I want to give you a challenge, okay? On, at one point this weekend, you tweeted this. Quote, I will carry this conference with me as work to avoid rendering flesh upon the positivist empiricist historian straw man, unquote. (laughs) Now, first of all, uh, I have no idea what that means. So second of all, I want to give you a challenge. Um, Please try to explain that tweet to me and our listening audience in plain language. Or in other words, Translate this tweet for my 74-year-old father who might be listening, who does not have a college degree. What are you talking about there, Drew? Okay, well, to begin with, as I said already, most of the people in attendance were literary critics, not historians. And they were quick to point out that there is a perception of historians as uncritical in the way they read their primary sources. In other words, if I'm reading the record of a British agent talking about an Indian village that he is visiting, a positivist empiricist might take his word for it, right? And just 
retell the past as if the British agent was a neutral observer. But critics like those at the conference point out all of the problems with such an approach. Unequal relationships of power change the meaning of that primary document. So critics would say that we need to be a lot more creative and perhaps cynical as we read those documents. Okay, fair enough. I actually was accused of this just recently in my American Bible Society book. We'll talk about that here in a few seconds, hopefully, uh, of giving too much credence to uh, the voices uh, of the primary documents that I was reading. Um, Okay, let's try this again. All right, how about another tweet (laughs) from the conference? This is a Drew Durley Hermeling tweet. All right, quote. I feel like you're Conan O'Brien and I'm Andy Richter here. That's right, that's right. Quote. Archival work is not the pursuit of facts, but instead a pursuit of aesthetic pleasure tied to the researcher's body, unquote. Shoot, Drew. What what does that mean? Tell me what that means. (laughs) All right. So this is what I'm going to put back on you. So you took a lot of pictures during your time in Mount Vernon. You were walking around the grounds, taking selfies under the busts of former presidents. So I think what they're trying... the presenter who said that, or I, that was a paraphrase, would would argue is he might ask, could your work there at Mount Vernon be influenced by your affinity for that place? The unique experience of do- doing work on those sacred grounds, as you described in a past episode, that you walked at night, could that not change your perspective? But what about a black historian? Would doing research on a property where black people were also property change the perspective of the researcher and the work that that research produces? So I'd also add that those making this uh, this point at the conference weren't necessarily arguing that that is a bad thing, but they were arguing that we need to be more quick to acknowledge that the archives that we go into and the places where we do research have as much to do with the kind of base desires of the researcher as they do with uh, a pursuit of some sort of truth uh, and, and some fact about the past. All right, fit that now into 140 characters, Drew. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but no, <laughs> no, that actually that actually makes some sense to me. Um, and, and so, so I think I get it. Well done. Uh, there may be hope for you yet, Drew. Yeah. Um, by the way, I should add that I responded on Twitter a couple times. I think I may have even done this on Facebook uh, with something along the lines of, "Quote, Drew, I forbid you to ever say those words on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast." But still, they got in. Actually, it did get in. You're right. You're right. See, this was all uh, a, a, a long game to get right. you I'm to sure, say. I'm sure the all those folks who were at this, the uh, critical situation critical, was that the name of the right. conference? The situation critical conference are listening to this podcast right now and getting a kick out of yeah. it. Yeah. So let's change the subject a little bit. You brought it up. How are things going with the release of the Bible Cause book? Well, excellent, I think. Um, I gave my first book talk last week. I thought it went really well. Uh, So far, I've received some very positive reviews. Uh, The book, by the way, I mean, uh, you know, I'm at the point in my career now where I don't mind saying this. Uh, The book has been getting hammered over at the uh, Religion in American History blog in a forum. Uh, I was really thankful to uh, George Mason University historian Lincoln Mullen for uh, setting up this symposium, this online symposium for the book in which three scholars of American religion uh, reviewed the book. So far, only two of those reviews 
have been out and they they've been pretty rough now fortunately i get a chance to respond so i have a lot to say uh, in response um i think i think there's a lot of difference between uh the kind of book uh sort of narrative history and we've talked about this a little bit on the uh, podcast uh the kind of narrative history i'm trying to do with this book and the sort of very critical um scholarly approach to my subject that some of the reviewers are taking but uh, i'm tipping my hand now head over to either my blog the uh, www.wayofimprovement.com or at the religion in american history blog and get caught up jump in on the conversations maybe the reviews are maybe the reviews are right maybe they're uh, uh maybe they're not necessarily on the mark uh, you can decide that and i'll be responding over there as well so that's been fun actually you know it, it, you get to the point after you've written a few books where your book is out there and people are responding to it positively negatively uh and it tells at least it tells me as an author that people are reading it and engaging with it so i'm happy about that and speaking of the book i've said this the last couple of weeks now uh, oxford university press is offering listeners to the podcast and readers of the blog a 30 percent discount on the book so head over to the way of improvement.com uh, you may have to scroll down a little bit to find uh the uh the post where we talk about this discount get the promotion code and head over to oxford university press and and purchase a copy of the book so uh, things are going well on that front, Drew. But, you know, enough about uh, sort of getting caught up on what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Let's talk some baseball. I know that you are very excited about our guest. I think we say this every week, don't we? But it's true. It's true, though. We are. We are very. All of us are excited. This week, we have Paul Lucas on the podcast. Yeah, well, I have to say, um, when we first were meeting having our early production meetings and discussing the kinds of guests that we wanted on the show. The first person I suggested was Paul Lucas. And let me give you a bit of context. Well, anyone who has watched a game with me will know that I can offer a lot of pretty annoying commentary, mostly focused on player uniforms. And this goes back since I was a kid. I've been fascinated by uniforms in my free time. I used to design my own football helmets. Uh, and frankly, I have very, very strong opinions. And those strong opinions eventually directed me towards the work of our guest. He is a regular contributor to ESPN.com and also the curator and author of his own blog, UniWatch.com, Paul Lucas. In fact, when we landed him as a guest, I started telling all of my friends who had all become quite familiar with him simply because I never shut up about his work. So I, I, I really am, was a little bit starstruck when we started the episode. But before we hear from Paul, what do you have for us today, John? The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2, to two, with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Burroughs did the same, a pall-like silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go in deep despair. The rest clung to the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could but get a whack at that. We'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a hoodoo, while the latter was a cake. 
So upon that stricken multitude, grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake the much despised tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Then from 5,000 throats and more, there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley. It rattled in the dell. It pounded on the mountain and recoiled upon the flat. For Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing and a smile lit Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, t'was Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance flashed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and Casey stood a-watching it in haughty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches black with people there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stand. And it's likely that they've had killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher and once more the dun sphere flew. But Casey still ignored it. And the umpire said, strike two. Fraud, cried the mad in thousands, and echoed, answered, fraud. But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. I was thinking about Casey at the bat last fall when my beloved New York Mets got back into the World Series. After the Mets lost to the Royals in Game 5, I sat down and wrote a blog post called On the Occasional Failure of Mets Magic. This audio essay is adapted from that piece. I've been a sports fan my entire life. My aunt and uncle gave me my first subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was seven years old. The next year, they bought me a subscription to the Sporting News. Somewhere in the attic at my parents' house in New Jersey, those magazines are stacked in chronological order alongside similar piles of Baseball Digest, Sport Magazine, and thousands of baseball, basketball, and football cards. 
I don't know why I never took this collection of memorabilia out of the attic. Perhaps I wanted to stay there as long as possible. As I have said before, nostalgia can be a powerful thing, especially when it is applied to the favorite teams of our childhood years. Much of my childhood revolved around the New York Mets. This morning, I was telling a friend that my first real memory of Mets baseball was watching Bud Harrelson and Pete Rose fight in Game 3 of the 1973 National League Championship Series. As a New Jersey kid growing up in the 70s, I spent countless hours in my backyard, baseball bat in hand, simulating imaginary Mets games. I knew the roster by heart. Grody behind the plate, Milner at first, Felix Milan at second, Buddy Harrelson at short, Wayne Garrett at third, Cleon Jones in left, Rusty Staub in right, and Del Unser, usually platooning, in center. And how about that pitching staff? Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, John Matlack, Tug McGraw, and even, I, even Bob Apodaca I used to imitate. I acted out complete nine-inning games, and of course, the Mets always pulled out the victory in the bottom of the ninth. On at least one occasion, our neighbors asked my parents if everything was okay with me. I was the weird kid next door who spent an hour or two on a Saturday afternoon swinging a bat, talking to myself. Actually, I was impersonating Mets announcers Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, and Ralph Kiner, and imitating the windup of Tom Seaver, my boyhood hero. After 1973, being a Mets fan was not easy. My imaginary games in the backyard, games in which Mets magic always prevailed in the end, represented an alternative universe that was far removed from what was actually happening at Shea Stadium. The Mets had two winning seasons between 1974 and 1983. They would not make the playoffs again until 1986, my junior year in college. And what a year that was. I vividly remember where I was and what I was doing in Game 6 of the National League Championship Series. Many of you will recall this 16-inning marathon against the Houston Astros. It was one of the greatest games in baseball history. I must confess that I did not watch that entire game. After the 10th inning, I had to go to basketball practice. Fortunately, between drills and water breaks, my coach let me run out of the gym into a nearby lobby with a television set so I could check the score. And then, of course, there was Game 6 of the World Series. I was in a packed dorm lobby with a few Mets fans and a lot of anti-Mets fans and Red Sox fans. I felt like I was watching a miracle take place that night. It was even better than the hundreds of imaginary games that took place in my backyard over the years. Any diehard Mets fan can chronicle the events that occurred in the bottom of the ninth. Gary Carter's two-out single to get the rally started. Bob Stanley's wild pitch. The Bill Buckner mishap on the Mookie Wilson routine grounder. And the image of Ray Knight crossing the plate. When we got back to my dorm room, my roommate, who was also a Mets fan, popped Aerosmith's sweet emotion into the tape deck. I have no idea why we chose that song. And we picked up a couple of hockey sticks and played air guitar, or at least something close to that, in front of the Mets pennant hanging on the wall. We were pouring with sweat. Our throats were sore. We were exhausted physically and emotionally. Bring on Game 7. Mets magic. Fast forward to November 2015. As the Mets batted in the bottom of the ninth, trailing the Royals 7-2, 
I could not stop thinking about Game 6 against the Red Sox. My rational faculties were momentarily suspended in the raw emotion that can only come from a lifelong loyalty to a baseball club took over. But Lucas Duda, Michael Conforto, and Wilmer Flores were not Gary Carter, Kevin Mitchell, and Ray Knight. Royals pitcher Wade Davis was not Calvin Schiraldi or Bob Stanley. Like 1973 and 2000, 2015 was not our year. The magic of youth fades, but it never disappears. This year I'm hoping for a revival of Mets magic, but I will also put my hope in the ever-maturing arms of Harvey, DeGrom, Syndergaard, and Mats. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets, bring your kitties, bring your wife, guaranteed to have the time of your life, because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Baseball is a wonderful window into the story of America. Leisure and the history of the middle class, race relations, big business, urban history, masculinity, it's all there. I'm glad the historians are working hard at illuminating the way the so-called national pastime has developed over time. But sometimes it's just good to be a fan. Let's go Mets. Thanks, John. And you know, it's, it, it really is interesting the way your story parallels mine. If you just substitute the St. Louis Cardinals, people like Ozzie Smith, Willie McGee, Jose Akendo, yeah, I, I remember the ha- having the same kinds of experiences, pretending in the backyard, uh, reenacting big baseball moments with my cousin. So it, it's, it's funny how baseball seems to bring out much of the same in all of its fans. Your thoughts about baseball and nostalgia also set up our interview today quite nicely. We will be joined by Paul Lucas. He is a freelance journalist and media artist who has worked with GQ Magazine, the New York Times, Fortune, but he has also earned a reputation as the uniform expert at ESPN.com. He also blogs regularly at his own website, uniwatch.com. That's uni dash watch.com and he is going to join us and discuss the minutiae and history of sports uniforms Our guest this week here on the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast, we're really excited about this guest. Uh, We're getting into sports history here and the beginning of the baseball season. Uh, I can't think of a better guest here than Paul Lucas. Uh, Some of you who are fans of Paul Lucas, uh, you know that he is the dean of the Institute of Inconspicuous Consumption located in his apartment uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, For those of you who don't know Paul, he is a journalist. He is a columnist for ESPN. Uh, he has a phenomenal blog about sports uniforms, both past and present, uh, called uniwatch.com. That's uni-watch.com. Uh, I also have learned, and if you follow him, you'll know that he is a Mets fan. So we share that. Uh, and also, 
uh, from what I understand, Paul's favorite baseball uniform uh, are the, is the Cardinals, uh, St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, of course, some of you know, Drew, our producer, is also a Cardinals fan. So this is rather fitting here uh, for our first week of April. It, it, it's all becoming clear why you invited me to be here. Exactly. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Glad to be here. Now, you write a lot about uh, uniforms, and you know I've been following some of your your great stuff on the uh, on the NCAA tournament. Um, you know some of your some of your interviews and posts, um, and you you just seem fascinated with. Uh, both historic uniforms, present day uniforms. You spend a lot of time writing and blogging about that. What's the interest? How, you know, take take us back to you know the boy Paul Lucas or whenever it happens. How did how did you get involved in uh, or develop this passion for his, uh, sports history and especially uniform history? Uh, you know, as a kid, uh, I I played a lot of uh, youth recreational sports. I played little league. I played youth league football. Uh, I played uh, CYO basketball, uh, and I always loved uh, getting my uniform for those sports. I don't think I was unique in that regard. I think a lot of kids, you know, kind of savored that moment when they got their first uniform. Uh, that you know, as a little leaguer, I loved putting on my stirrups, my stirrup socks, as part of my little league uniform. <laughs> right. right. Um, and I was also so, so. All right. So in that regard, I don't. I don't think I was all that unusual. I think that's a, a common experience for a lot of kids. Uh, there was maybe a smaller subset of kids that I was also a part of, uh, the kind of kids who were always like doodling logos in their notebooks instead of paying attention at school, um, and and drawing, you know, their favorite athletes and players with a particular attention to how the uniform looked on them. And I was that kid. Uh, I was doing a lot of that. But I wasn't really thinking about, you know, oh, I'm really into uniforms or I'm really into logos. It was just something that was, I guess, a natural geekiness that was just part of who I was. And I, I didn't really think about it as, as something I could do anything with, uh, you know, as an expressive outlet. Uh, I, later on, uh, as an adult, uh, I spent a lot of the 1990s uh, writing about aspects of the design world, uh, mainly as it uh, related to consumer culture, uh, product design, brand design, uh, package design, and usually with this sort of excruciatingly detail-oriented approach. And I realized at some point that I could take that same approach and apply it to sports. And I, I was had been and was still a big sports fan. And I realized I had internalized uh, a lot of knowledge and a lot of opinions uh, about the look and the, the the visual aspect of sports. And nobody was writing about that. And to my knowledge, nobody had, had ever had written about it, at least not on any kind of regular basis. And I thought this, is, this was something like a, a new project I wanted to do. And so I, I came up with the idea of a, a column devoted to, uh, to sports design or, or aesthetics, athletics aesthetics, if you will. And I called it UniWatch. And I shopped it around and, uh, you know, eventually found a home for it. And that was 17 years ago. And I, nobody's more pleased or surprised than I am that it's lasted that long. Wow, that's incredible. Have you, you know, I'm curious about your interest in this sort of design, uh, you know, design and that kind of thing. Have you ever, do you have any kind of academic training or academic background in that? Because when you talk about sort of design and these kinds of things, it sounds like, you know, a lot of kind of historians of material culture that I, that I talk to, you know, about aesthetics and these kinds of things. 
Uh, no, actually, I have very little uh, or really no formal training in any of that. I'm a bit of a dilettante, uh, and I mean yeah. that in the best way, in the sense that uh, I'm an enthusiast. Uh, I was lucky enough uh, in my 20s, uh, and I should say I'm 52, I just turned 52, but in my 20s, uh, I uh, was working as a book editor, and I was lucky enough to be working for a publisher that did a lot of graphic design books. And I didn't really know much about that world, but I learned a lot. Uh, by, by working on those books and just also just by working in the book industry where you learn a lot about typesetting and page layout and, and things like that. There's a lot of design aspects to it. Uh, and then the subject matter of the, of the books was a lot of graphic design. And so, uh, I found I really liked it. Uh, I got to know people in that world and kind of self-taught myself a, a number of things. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, I just learned that I could kind of wing it, <laughs> you know, yeah, that it, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a lot of it, with the, the consumer culture writing that I was mentioning before, uh, I found that, uh, you know, that I could develop a voice and a point of view, um, again, very detail oriented, uh, and that there was an audience for it. And, uh, I was very, very fortunate that it worked out that way. And then even more fortunate that I, I came to the decision or the idea that I could apply it to sports. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that to sort of, you know, again, coming from the sort of academic history world, you know, I run into sort of, you know, museum people and so forth. They talk about this kind of consumer culture, material culture, right? The 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 nineteenth century woman Victorian era dress that you see at the Smithsonian or something like that. Um, it seems it seems that this these kinds of objects, right? Uh, in many ways, uh, that's what you're doing with uniforms. You're sort of analyzing historic sports uniforms, uh, pieces of material culture. So what sort of insights have you gleaned about, um, you know, consumerism, both in the past and the present from from these historic uniforms? I mean, on one sense, right, you could talk about consumerism. People are people are uh, kids are buying these things. So there's that sort of consumer dimension, right? Everybody has to have their uniform. But on the other hand, too, when a team uh, when a team sort of puts their product out on the field, say in a a baseball game or a football uh, football game, you know, they're also, you know, obviously I'm guessing they're not wearing those uniforms because they're comfortable or the players like the colors. It's all about sort of selling, right? Um, selling the product to the fans or to the, the sure, kids. Sure, sure. It's, it's yeah. about branding, uh, you know, a very popular term at the moment. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, as far as UniWatch goes, I tend not to focus on the consumer side so much, even though yeah. that, that was uh, an area uh, I had spent a lot of time writing about when, when writing about things other than sports. I, I wrote a lot about marketing and, and consumer culture and package design. Right, right. With, with uh, UniWatch, I tend to focus on what the players wear on the field, not what fans buy or what's for okay. sale. Okay. Uh, I tend to draw a pretty s strong distinction between those two things. Uh, part of it is that I'm just not all that interested in the stuff that's for sale. I've never bought any of that stuff myself. Uh, right. I grew up in the 70s and 80s when uh, there you could not buy, uh, you know, as a Mets fan or a right. you know, <laughs> Cardinals fan or whatever, you could not buy a, a jersey, and it was hard to find even a cap. Yeah, because they yeah. had they had not yet figured out uh, that people would happily spend hundreds of dollars for what is essentially uh, a polyester shirt, and um, so maybe because I didn't grow up with it, uh, yeah. but also it, it, it's for whatever reason, it, that aspect of, 
I don't know, wear, wearing the same thing that thousands of other people are wearing at the ballpark. I'm not knocking the people who do it, but it's I just ne- it's never particularly interested me. Uh, what interests me is what's worn on the field, um, how the players um, either modify or you know all the little variations in how players okay. wear their uniforms that this guy likes to wear it this way and that guy likes to wear it that way. Uh, and yeah, what you talked about uh, a minute ago saying that it's always been part of um, – you know, a, t- a team's uniform is part of that of the team business's right. visual presentation and branding. Uh, obviously, that's that has changed over the years in the sense that uh, you know, if you go back, say, the 1940s or 50s, sports for the most part was not televised, uh, or there was barely, you know, if you go back even further, there was no television. So the uniform mattered, but it really only mattered to the people who were there at the ballpark. Right. Uh, you know, uh, or who maybe saw a photo in the newspaper that the next day, but even that was going to be a black and white photo. Sure, um, tele- sure. Television has changed. Uh, and, and of course the internet since then, right. uh, it's changed, uh, the stakes has kind of raised the stakes on all of this. Uh, but uniforms were still important even before the days of, uh, uh, of television. And that's why we still have teams, today that are named the Red Sox and the White Sox, right, you know, right. where they're literally named after a part of the uniform. So why, so I know you were getting at this a little bit, but then why sort of prior to, you know, the, the store in the mall with a million hats or, or the, you know, the, the sporting goods store that sells the jerseys, why are uniforms important say in the 1940s you know i'm at ebbets field and the brooklyn dodgers come out in their uniform I mean, what what kind of statement is that uniform making i mean why is the uniform even important or is it just a kind of functional thing that you have to wear something uh, part of it is functional right i mean what the, when you think about uniforms not just sports uniforms like the, mo- the, the most common uniforms in human history are military uniforms. And why, why do armies and, and military forces wear uniforms? It's so you can tell one side from the other, right? It's so, right. you know, you can tell who's, who's fighting on your side and who's fighting on the other side. Uh, yeah. And that's part of the same function in sports. You want to be able to know who your teammates are versus who the opponents are. And the fans, you want the fans to be able to tell that as well. So, so there's that, a, a certain very basic level functionality there. Uh, in addition, and I think this goes back to the military as well, um, there's something about a uniform that is very, for lack of a better term, official. A uniform makes, it looks official and it makes anyone who wears it look and feel and seem official. Uh, and I think there's something very appealing about that, uh, that you, when you watch people and you're paying to watch them, if you're in the crowd, right, um, you've paid money to see this. Um, yeah. How do you tell that these guys are the best and that they're worth it? How, you know, they, because they're wearing the uniform. That makes them official. Uh, they are official professionals. And there's, uh, I think there's something very seductive about that. Uh, in addition, um, you know, there's the famous line, uh, by Jerry Seinfeld saying that sports is basically rooting for laundry. And to expand upon that notion a bit, and this certainly goes back to the early days of sports, um, you know, the, it, we can think of sports loyalty as, uh, you know, when you're rooting for a team, as a very intense form of brand loyalty. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of brand loyalty in the consumer right. realm. Uh, and let, let's say, for example, that I like Cheerios, which in fact I do. And uh, let's say I have it for breakfast every morning. Now, if they changed the, the the content, if they changed the formula, and it tastes suddenly tasted different, and I didn't like it that much, 
I might buy one more box just to see if it, you know, if that was just one bad box. And right. I'll, let me just try it again. You know, and it's because it still looks like Cheerios. It still has the same package. It still has the familiar yellow box. And, you know, it sort of speaks to me on some emotional level because I've internalized that relationship. But ultimately, if the content of the product and the quality of the product is not, is not maintained, I'm going to say, well, the hell with this. And, you know, my brand loyalty only goes so far. But in sports... The content of the product and the quality of that content is changing all the time because the players come and go, they retire, they're traded, there's free agency, blah, blah, blah. And so your team can be really good one year and really bad the next year. But for the most part, and this has changed a little bit in the era of things like fantasy sports and and like that where, where a lot of fans now root more for an individual player than for a team, but still for the most part, most fans are loyal to that team, that brand, those colors, right. that logo, and that uniform. And, and to put this in very simplistic terms, if I'm a Mets fan today, which I am, and if I really hate the Yankees, which I do, uh, and, and so let's say that's the case, and in fact it is, and let's say tonight the, the Mets and Yankees pull a big trade. 20, they, they trade their entire rosters, even up, 25 right. guys for 25 guys. Who do I root for tomorrow? And to me, it's a no-brainer. I root for the guys who are wearing Mets uniforms, exactly. even if it's 25 guys I hated yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, that's- I, that is the power of the uniform. Yeah, that is that's good. That's good. And and you know, again, I'm I'm really interested in these kind of questions as a historian of kind of change over time. And in some ways, uh, in some ways, there is a would you say, say in the 1930s and 40s, though, there was that uh, the similar phenomenon going on here? If there was a 25 man trade, um, you know, it's still it's still the uniform, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me uh, let me ask another question. In reading some of your stuff and following you. Uh, and, and I don't know if what's the best word to describe this, but you see your your sort of preference for uniforms seem to be maybe conservative is is the wrong word. I'm thinking maybe like minimalist, uh, simplistic, uh, traditional. You know, we're out here in central Pennsylvania, you know, so I'm thinking like you know Joe Paterno's Penn State, you know, kind of kind of uniforms. Um, first of all, is that is that a fair assessment? And then you know, is this purely kind of an aesthetic thing? Is there some kind of historical reason why you're attracted to these more minimalist uniforms um you know just curiosity um i'm not big on labels so i i I don't some people are i guess and might say oh i i am this or i am that that's why i threw out about five different options Uh, i I, I feel like my my tastes are my tastes right um and they are what they are and I think I'm not looking to, you know, push a particular aesthetic. I think one could look at my work and not unreasonably say that I'm a classicist, um, meaning that I like the classics. Uh, And in general, in most aspects of life, not just aesthetic aspects, I think classics get to be classic for a reason. uh, And that is that they work. Uh, And I generally think that if something isn't broke, you don't have to fix it. Um, and so that, you know, that leads me generally toward, I wouldn't say more conservative designs because I think there are plenty of conservative designs that are just plain and boring. Um, but, 
Um, yeah, I'm a, I'll, 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 I will accept the label classicist, although, okay. but I, I also have liked certain designs over the years that, you know, are new and, and have pushed sure. the envelope a little bit. Uh, but I, I, I am often skeptical um, of designs that just seem to have extraneous uh, bells and whistles just for the sake of it. What's interesting, though, is I, I was just having a conversation with another interviewer about this. We were talking about the Arizona Diamondbacks' new uniforms for this season, which have all kinds of bells and whistles. It, it's right. a it's a really kind of out there design. They've got this. Just like, so you know, just so you know, we were talking, we were hoping you would bring that up. We were talking about <laughs> that in our production meeting. So this is great. <laughs> so they, they're really, it, it's, it's a design that seems almost calculated to divide people along like traditionalist versus newfangled tastes, you know, that it, it's almost right. designed to, to piss people off if, if they're of the more traditional leanings or classicist leanings, whatever. Um, I, I personally, I don't care for it. It's not my thing. Uh, I think a lot of it seems like it, it does seem too calculated. Like, oh, let's put a little detail here and a little thing there and, and let's, let's just push it as far as we can push it. But it doesn't actually feel like good design. It just feels, sure. um, again, calculated. So I was talking to this other interviewer about it and he said, after we talked about the, the Diamondbacks, he said, well, now let's talk about something else that's happening this year. The Pittsburgh Pirates are bringing back their classic 1979 uniform as a throwback which they are the pirates this year are, are wearing their 79 we are family that the, the we are family design as a sunday throwback and what's funny is that he called it classic now that design <laughs> at the time like i was growing up when when yeah, that design yeah. came out and that was part of a, a system of uniforms that the pirates introduced in the mid 70s mid and late 70s that was we now call the bumblebee system yeah where they had you know, yellow jersey, black jersey, white jersey with thick yellow pinstripes. Um, then the same thing for the pants. Uh, there was a yellow pants, black pants, white with the pinstripes, yellow uh, stirrups, black stirrups. And they mixed and matched all of these things, and, and which meant they were sometimes wearing solid black, like a black jersey with black pants, which had not been done before. And still, you, know, you don't see that today in baseball. Right. And it was seen as you know, somewhere between heretical and just goofy. Yeah. And, but now, you know, almost 40 years later, here's a guy describing it to me as classic. And as a, and he says that as a counterpoint to what the diamondbacks are doing. Yeah. And so that, that shows that over time, and I always try to remember this and keep it in mind when, when I'm assessing a design over time, what looks, you know, kind of crazy and out there today can look a little different with, with some hindsight and some context. And that's a really hard thing to keep in mind in today's yeah. landscape where everything is instant reaction. Um, everyone has kind of a short attention span. The idea of, of designing something and, or even reacting to something for the long haul, you know, with, a, with like a long-term view or viewpoint in mind is really hard today. And, but I, I try to keep it in mind. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe 20 or 30 years from now, We'll be looking back at these Diamondback designs and saying, um, hey, classic of its era. Classic. Just like the Pirates Bumblebee design was a classic of its era. Yeah. I, personally, I'm skeptical of that. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I suspect that's not going to happen. No, I, I, I love this point because 
you know, again, as a historian, you know, this is this is what I'm always trying to get my students and others to understand. Right. I mean, what is classic? What is new? What is what is uh, you know, it's it's all within the particular context in which that, uh, you know, in which that uniform in this case was constructed. So, you know, the, the Pittsburgh Pirate example is a great example. I mean, this, you know, for some of a certain generation. Right. That is a classic. That is a classic uniform. Yeah. Great point. Well, you know, great. another point sort of related to this, is, and it touches upon something I mentioned earlier, you know, nowadays there, there's so much uh, uniform retailing and merchandising, and that absolutely drives what we see on the field. You know, I, I said earlier, I, I try to focus what's on the field. I don't really think about or care about the merchandising, but you can't fully separate those two worlds because a lot of what we see uh, on the field is driven by what these teams think people will buy. Right. You know, and so, uh, and unfortunately, uh, and I say I say this only because it, it, ideally it would be the whole fan base that buys this, and so the entire fan base's opinion uh, and sensibilities would be taken into a, into account when they do these designs. But the reality is, only a certain subset of the fan base, only a certain demographic subset, uh, meaning a, basically a younger subset, right. because it's like right. I, I always try to imagine like a fifty-seven-year-old. A guy and his 30 year old son. And, you know, the son probably buys a lot of jerseys and the father probably doesn't because 57 year olds just don't do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you've basically got one part of the fan base's tastes driving what everybody else in the fan base has to look at because the teams want to, to sure. be able to move this merchandise. So, and because of that, I feel like the uniform world is moving much closer to the behavior of the fashion world. And I, fashion is a word I've always resisted yeah. uh, in connection to my work. I always say I don't write about fashion. I write about design. Fashion, by definition, is always changing. Um, and it has all this planned obsolescence built into it. Uh, that, you know, what, what looks good today is, is almost supposed to look stupid tomorrow so that you buy the next thing. Um, uniforms have traditionally did not work that way. Uh, but... They are working that way more and more because of the merchandising aspect. And I, I, it's another, I, I think, unfortunate aspect of the merchandising thing is that you see a lot of these designs today. And I think the Diamondbacks' uh, new set may fall into that category that not only will never become classics, but are, were never intended to become classics. Like that never went into the thinking. They are not built for the long haul. They're right. built for now and to make a splash now. And then if they look stupid in a few years, well, we'll just come out with something else that looks like now, you know, you know, three years from now. And, and that it's a much faster cycle uh, of changeover. And, and that is much closer to the way the fashion world uh, behaves than the way the sports world. But, but these things, these things, Paul, are much harder. The, these things about, you know, whether or not that new diamonds back uniform is going to be a classic. These things are actually there. You have to admit, though, they're hard to predict. I mean, because, you know, you also have you also have, you know, you know, I saw some kid the other day in the mall wearing the old like I'm going to interrupt for a second and yeah. say one reason that Pirates design got to become viewed as a classic is that back in that that era in the in the mid and late 70s, there was no jersey retailing. The Pirates did not introduce that design as a way to move product. There was no product being moved. That does not the only thinking that went into that design is. What you know? Will it look good on the field? Is this how we want to look on the field? And and we can stay looking this way as long as we want, because there was no retail pressure to bring a new product in. Like like nobody said, eh, these, this design isn't selling. Better come up with a new one. 
So it got to stick around long enough to become viewed as a classic. It is much harder now. There's more pressure on teams to change their designs more often because of that retail pressure. And if you're constantly changing, it's difficult for anything to be seen as classic. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a throwaway culture, you know? I mean, this isn't mm-hmm, working. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of it. And, you right, know, which, it, which again, that's, that was the point I was making about fashion yeah. versus design. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, fair enough. Drew? Yeah, well, l- let's transition. I mean, I think you've gotten into some political conversations, too, in regards to uh, specifically Native American mascots. Uh, you don't know my own work, but I work on 18th century Native American history. So this is uh, a subject that is close to my heart, is part of my teaching. Um, but, right, I mean, and I think someone could make the argument that continuing to use these Native American mascots is part of this connection to a past, connection to a classic look, you know. So why are you conceivably taking a very different um, approach when talking about the about Cleveland or the Washington football team? Uh, my position on this stuff uh, has been pretty consistent for years. Uh, I, I think it's unfortunate that the debate over Native American iconography in sports usually comes down to whether something is quote unquote offensive, um, which is a, a term that has is now thrown around so much that it's almost lost any meaning or whether it's racist, which is just a red flag word that like, kind of escalates any discussion uh, to a point where you can't have meaningful dialogue. Because if you, if you call something racist, then anybody who likes it is, is by implication also racist. Uh, and nobody wants to be told they're racist. My position is much simpler. Uh, I, I, I'm not particularly interested in whether these things are quote unquote offensive or racist. My feeling is that uh, I was taught at a very young age, as most of us were, that you don't use something or take something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, And it seems to me that most of the native iconography uh, being used in sports uh, should be the province of Native Americans if they want to use it. And that having it be used by non-native teams uh, strikes me as wrong. Uh, it's it's a, an appropriation and a misappropriation that that I think is is not the right thing to do. If there's a, a team of Native Americans that wants to use the, you know an Indian head design, uh, or, or for that matter, if they want to call themselves the Redskins, um, that's up to them. Uh, this this cultural heritage belongs to them, uh, and I feel they should be the ones who decide how it's used. There are several uh, major colleges that have uh, arrangements with local tribes. Uh, like Florida State does uh, with Seminoles, and Utah does with the Utes, uh, the University of Utah, that is, uh, and Central Michigan does with the Chippewas, and and I think that's great. Uh, if you have permission, uh, then, you know, by all means. Uh, but the, the point uh, that these schools even ask permission uh, speaks to, I think, the, the fairly obvious uh, point that, that, that they are using something that is not theirs, and they, they ask permission, and that permission was granted. Uh, and to me, that's how it should be, uh, that, that no team should be using uh, Native American iconography. And I, I say that not just in terms of uh, the Washington football team's name uh, or Chief Wahoo with the Indians. Uh, I don't think the, the Atlanta Braves should be using a tomahawk. I don't think the Kansas City Chiefs should be using an arrowhead. Uh, all these things draw upon and let's not forget are selling and uh, raising and generating millions and dollars, millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, on uh, basically on the backs of somebody else's cultural heritage. And I don't think it's right. 
So, so his, you know, we always say in history that, you know, history is a very limited discipline, right? I mean, it only gets us so far with these big questions in politics and so forth that, that you were just addressing. So I think, is it fair to say, Paul, that your, your classicist, if you want to call it that love of jerseys, uh, only, only goes so far. It is often, it is always going to be trumped in some ways by these kind of moral and ethical, uh, issues in contemporary life, right? You're not going to, you're not as I mentioned earlier, I'm not a big fan of labels. Um, right. I feel like you're sort of trying to project um, an ideology onto me, and then and then saying that I I somehow deviated from that ideology. But there is no ideology here. I, my, I, everything I look at is on a case by case basis. Um, I think you can connect the dots in my work and say that I have a certain tendency, or that my opinions have a certain tendency. But there is no overarching. Um, you know, dogma or, you know, uh, a standard that, that I'm trying to apply, except this looks good to me or makes sense to me or, you know, works for me on a certain level or it doesn't. Uh, and it, that's always a case by case basis. And it goes into not just the aesthetics, but the thinking behind it. And, you know, obviously the symbolism and, and things like that, uh, which come into play when we're talking about Native Americans. Yeah, that's sure. That's fair enough. So, you know, like your op- opposition to native mascots, you've made your distaste for, for so-called military appreciation uniforms known, right? You've coined this term going full G.I. Joe for when, uh, uh, you know, on Memorial Day, teams roll out these American flag and uh, uh, camouflage uniforms. And, you know, is this a new phenomenon, do you think, this this military appreciation um, uh obsession among sports uniform designers uh, and I'm, I'm thinking too about the kind of uh the revelations about the ways in which the u.s military and especially uh projects like wounded warriors have been investing large amounts of money into getting these uniforms on the field as a kind of branding maneuver i was just wondering um why you think this this new this phenomenon has has sprung up very recently and 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 just kind of get your comment on that uh, the the phenomenon of um, support for the military being expressed on sports uniforms uh, goes back nearly a century uh, back to World War one uh, in 1917 there were quite a few major league baseball teams uh, and, and in 1918 and 19 as well, through the, the course of World War One, uh, there were several Major League Baseball teams that wore um, either a striped armband, like a red, white, and blue armband, or in some cases, red, white, and blue socks, uh, or a flag-based patch, uh, all to support America's involvement uh, in World War One. Uh, and you can see similar expressions going throughout uh the baseball timeline and some of the other sports timelines, but especially baseball uh, throughout most of the the major wars. Uh, During World War II, there were flag-based patches worn by most Major League Baseball teams. And even uh, if you look at the footage of the 1990 World Series, uh, we were involved in the Gulf War then, and the Cincinnati Reds added um, an American flag chest patch um, just for the World Series. They had not worn it uh, earlier uh, in that season. And other sports have done similar things. Uh, it was the San Diego Padres who pioneered uh, the use of camouflage uh, as a military gesture. Uh, San Diego, of course, is a big military town. Uh, Marines and Navy have a huge presence, and they're part, they're, they are part of the fabric of San Diego life. And so the Padres, I believe it was in 2004, I'd have to double-check that, uh, started wearing 
uh, a camouflage jersey for one or two games per season. It turned out to be very popular, and uh, some years later, they started making it uh, a, a Sunday tradition that uh, for Sunday home games, they would wear a camouflage jersey, and they still do that today. Uh, and then uh, camouflage spread uh, from there throughout you know, the rest of the sports world. We see it now even down at the youth league level, like little league teams sometimes doing this. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, I think it's bad design. I think it looks terrible. Camouflage works in certain settings that it's designed to work in. I don't think it looks particularly good on a sports uniform. Uh, number two, it's often, uh, in addition to bad design, it's bad civics. Uh, we see camouflage being used uh, sort of as an all-purpose uh, symbol of patriotism, and it ends up being uh, bad history, which you guys as historians, I'm sure, have thought about. We see teams wearing uh, camouflage to, quote, support the military on Memorial Day, um, but Memorial Day is not a military celebration holiday. Memorial Day is a, a holiday of mourning. Uh, and it seems to me that a black armband and a moment of silence would be a lot more appropriate. Uh, we see teams wearing camouflage on the 4th of July sometimes to support the military. But the 4th of July is not a day to celebrate the military. It's the day we celebrate the signing of the Declaration, or the, um, excuse me, the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and I am disappointed by the way uh, the sort of all-purpose uh, rah-rah support the troops impulse has been translated uh, into to sort of let's just slap it on a uniform and say, you know, call it military appreciation. Um, and the, my third objection is that it, it presents a sort of distorted view uh, of American culture to a certain degree. Um, while certainly many uh, members of the military are heroic, they are not the only heroes uh, in service to their country. I see no special uniforms for Peace Corps volunteers, uh, for civil servants, public servants, teachers, and others who are every, every bit as deserving of appreciation. Uh, and uh, I'm not suggesting necessarily that we should have uniforms for all of them. I would frankly would like to see fewer and fewer special uniforms because we've, we're reaching the point uh, where every game is special somehow because of its uniform. And when everything is special, basically nothing is special anymore. Um, so I, I, I'm not a fan of that either, uh, where the military is singled out uh, repeatedly, repeatedly as the only sector of American life uh, worthy of celebration. And while they, they may be to a certain degree, they are not the only ones. And um, I, I find it disappointing the way the sports world has bought into that message. Uh, we've been talking with Paul Lucas. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the interview, Paul uh, is a journalist, a writer, an expert on all things historical when it comes to sports uniforms. He writes for ESPN, so Google him, check out his ESPN columns, and head over to uniwatch.com, his blog, uni-watch.com. Paul, it's been a privilege talking with you. Thanks for taking some time out of what I, I imagine is a busy day to chat with us. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me uh, go on. I know it can be long-winded on some of those responses. Uh, it was fun. It was fun. I wish we could go longer.
lot of things to think about in that interview, Drew. Uh, as you could tell, I tried to bring some historical thinking to bear on some of uh, Paul's comments. And I think uh, I think he was really open to discussing uh, sort of those ideas, especially when we're talking about things like nostalgia and, you know, what makes for a classic uniform and those kinds of things. Those are very much historical questions. Um, I was also really fascinated by, uh, again, like I talked about in my story about the Mets today, this sort of idea of nostalgia. It's such a powerful, powerful sort of emotion, especially when it comes to baseball. And it's also very interesting to see the way Major League Baseball sort of plays upon that emotion, plays upon that nostalgia uh, in their branding. Uh, I think future historians of Major League Baseball are are going to uh, really call attention to this, the role that consumer culture plays in sort of manipulating the kind of boyhood memories, girlhood memories, in some cases, childhood memories uh, that all of us have about our favorite sports teams. You know, before we went on the air, we, we were talking a little bit. And it's amazing how as sort of historians, we are so critical of everything. We want to look at everything with a critical eye. Uh, you know, we can't even watch a television show without dissecting the sort of historical problems or errors and historical thinking or logic. But when it comes to baseball or the sport that we love, all of that kind of critical uh, thinking sort of goes by the wayside and we become sort of nostalgic, um, you know, uh, as they like to say, homers, right, for our home team. Uh, and, you know, in some cases, the, the rational faculties are put aside and the emotions and the passions and the love of of, uh, of the sport and of the team and, and really of the place that that team often represents sort of really shine through. Yeah, and I think actually baseball does that even more so than a lot of other sports. I think they they really understand that that's their market. They want everything about the sport to remind a kid of going to a game with their parents, of having that first ballpark hot dog, uh, you know, traveling downtown uh, in order to go to the stadium. Um, you know, and I don't. I don't see a lot of that in other sports. They they really do market nostalgia. Yeah, and you know it's also interesting what you just said too. Um, you know, and maybe we could you know Paul. Well, I'd be interested to hear what Paul Lucas would say about this. But in many ways, you know, I talked to my family, my grandparents, and so forth, who would go to games. You know, and it was very much kind of an urban experience, right? You jumped on the subway and you went to the ballpark. You know, it was people from Brooklyn who went to Ebbets Field. It was people from New York who went to the Polo grounds or Yankee Stadium and so forth. Um, but but now this kind of nostalgia is really, really uh, based on a kind of suburban consumer who, I love the way you put that, sort of goes into the city, right, uh, to see a game. No, absolutely. And it, it's funny how your experience, again, mirrors mine. My family all is from Alton, Illinois, right across the river from St. Louis. And that's why we're all Cardinals fans. And, you know, I, I know I have never lived in St. Louis, but it's where my family base is. And it's 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 that home uh, as my family has scattered across the country. You know, I come from a Navy family, so I'll, I'll really scattered across the country and that's home. Uh, baseball is is going going to Bush Stadium is going home in ways that even just going to a house might not be. So your so so your way of improvement always leads home, right, Drew? I yeah, I, my way of improvement always leads to Bush. That's right. That's right. 
But I also want to get to the discussion we had about Native American iconography, and it reminds me a lot of Philip Deloria's argument in his book, Playing Indian, which I actually am teaching this semester. And historically, throughout United States history, pretending to be Indian, or in the case of sports, naming a team after Indians, conjures up a lot of things, a feeling of ferocity, bravery, independence. But in the end, I think it also has more to do with who we are, not Indians, and erases the experiences of the real uh, of real Indians. And I think that's a lot of what Paul Lucas was getting at. And so even when he's discussing history and nostalgia, right, it's a different historical conversation that informs his his feelings about Native American iconography. And in fact, a subject I agree with him uh, on wholeheartedly. Yeah, well, there. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Deloria, I think I, we mentioned this in a previous episode. Deloria came to Messiah College and gave a lecture on his book, Playing Indian. Uh, we're definitely going to have to have him on the show at some point in the fall. Season two. Now, by the way, Drew, uh, as you began to interpret uh, that sort of Native American stuff, uh, I did I did notice that the the um, nostalgic kid playing uh, make believe St. Louis Cardinal games quickly transitioned again into the Ph.D. student studying Native American history. So you you haven't given up yet on that sort of critical deconstruction uh, thing that you learned that you were studying this weekend in uh, Philadelphia at that conference. Well, absolutely. Let's just say I'm thankful that I cheer for teams from St. Louis and not teams from Cleveland or Atlanta or Washington, D.C., because I don't have to make some of the same kinds of decisions. And and I think that's important to note anytime. And in fact, I had this conversation with my students, you know, it, and, and, and Paul brought it up, too. I think too many people are quick to just say, oh, well, if you like the Washington football team, you, you must be a racist. Um but it's a lot more complicated than that. And getting past the nostalgia is really, really hard. And um, in fact, there was a story that just came out uh, opening day at Cle- in Cleveland this year. A uh, Every opening day, there are protests um, by Native Americans who are encouraging them, uh, and in the case of Cleveland, mostly to change their logo. Um, and... A couple of years ago, there was an altercation, not an altercation, a conversation between uh, a fan, a white fan who had painted, who was wearing red face and a Native American uh, about the appropriateness of what he was doing. And this year, that same fan ended up meeting with the same protester and the fan apologized and said it wasn't something he was going to do anymore. So change can happen. And and I think you can still hold on to your fandom and still really be committed. You know, the, the, this fan was still getting there for opening day, but he'd realized that, you know, maybe there's this change is more important than, 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 than that nostalgia. Yeah, Drew, I love listening to you as your academic and interests converge with your love of baseball. Great stuff. Yeah, well, my love of baseball is deep, as unfortunately, uh, in, in, in fact, my uncle warned my wife when we first got married that uh, uh, when he got married, his wife didn't realize that part of being married to him meant letting uh, listening to ball games on the uh uh, bedroom radio uh, late into the night when the Cardinals were playing on the West Coast. So. That's right. That's right. I used to have the little transistor I used to stick in my ear. Well, uh, Drew, I think that's a wrap. What do you say? Th- what do you think? 
No, absolutely. I think it's another great episode. So I uh, checked the schedule. It looks like the Mets are playing the Cardinals at home on July 25th through 27th. That's a week midweek series. Are you going to make the trip to Queens? Well, actually, no, because I will have just gotten back from St. Louis, where I'm going to be seeing the Cardinals at home. Uh, we're taking my daughter out to see a bunch of my uh, my family out there for the first time, and we're going to make sure to catch a game while we're there. Nilsa's first baseball game. Will that be the first, or will you be going uh, to something before that? Yeah, so it'll be her first on the outside. She went to a few games last year while she was still uh, in utero. Well, well, uh, we'll definitely have to get some pictures up uh, to see Absolutely. that. Since, after all, Nilsa is the third member of our uh, our, our uh, producing our production team. Here. Yep, she's our, our very important intern. That's right. Great episode, Drew. Um, and for you out there listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Uh, just remember, uh, as you head out to the ballpark this summer, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark for his support. Original music is by Overholt. And thank you to our guest, Paul Lucas. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fiat.